Welcome to the Spiritual Life Management Podcast, where we help you bring balance in your life and live to your fullest potential with your host, Gretchen Smith. Today, we are going to delve into the mystery of the Great Pyramids, the ancient Egyptian mystery schools, the Emerald Tablets, ancient Egyptian cosmology and divination with my special guest, Lara Meza Ingram. Laura is a British Egyptian nude and empowerment photographer and filmmaker who has shot the likes of BBC, Vice, and London Fashion Week. And now living her best life in Bali, Laura uses photography and art as a tool for self-love and transformation. When the camera is not in her hand, she can be found guiding people through the sacred sites of ancient Egypt, where she runs retreats for those who feel Egypt's call and teachings. Welcome, Laura. Hi, Gretchen. So good to be here. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Absolutely. It's been a long time coming, but I'm so happy we're here together and we've made this wonderful podcast work for us today. I agree. Couldn't agree more. So I have to say that your background is so fascinating to me. You're probably about half of my age and you've done so many incredible things in your life. You've been a world traveler from a very young age, a journalist, you're a photographer, and now you're living your best life in Bali. So would you mind just kind of giving the audience a little bit of a background about how in the world you went from being Egyptian born, you've traveled to all these wonderful places, and now you're in Bali? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess, yeah, I was born in Egypt, like you said, and uh, yeah, half English, half Egyptian, traveled around uh, from a young age. And then, yeah, that was, I guess, mostly because of my dad's job. He was a journalist based in Southeast Asia. So I grew up uh, in Thailand, actually. So I was always very, you know, had this very deep connection to Asia. And Asia just always felt like my second home after Egypt. And then I ended up going to university in the UK, um, went to film school there, And, you know, had a really amazing experience and definitely London and Brighton, where I was living for university, taught me so, so much. Yeah, I don't know. I think after after a certain point, it was just it it just wasn't really feeling aligned for me anymore. You know, I felt like it just wasn't a match to who I am as a person, the the kinds of things that I value, even just like basic things like sunshine and warmth. Right. Yeah, I guess like this is definitely just the the highly summarized version, but how I ended up in Bali. So I finished my degree, I finished university, and then I actually went back to Thailand because I was like, okay, I really miss Thailand. I miss Asia. I want to go back. So I ended up doing a TEFL course so I could teach English abroad and just travel around Mm -hmm. for a year. I ended up actually teaching English at a Buddhist wisdom school in the mountains of Khao Yai for a year. After teaching there for a year, I traveled around and that that was 2014. And towards the end of my trip around Asia, I actually went to Bali and that was my first time uh, visiting the island. And, you know, Bali is a very mystical, magical place. I always say that it's like the island from that show Lost. I don't know if you've seen it before, mm-hmm. but it's it just has a like a magnitude and a power of its own, you know, and it's actually a she, you know, like even the locals consider the energy of Bali to be very feminine. Um, It's a very, very strong magnetic pull. And it's something that I felt, you know, right off the bat, the first time I was there. And I remember even having a moment to myself thinking, you know, I'm going to live here one day. 
And so, you know, fast forward a few years, I went back to the UK, I did a master's, I started working as a, um, a filmmaker, did my training at the BBC in journalism and documentary making. And then off the back of that I was freelancing for a few years, doing photography as well. And then at a certain point, I remember, I think this was 2019, I was just feeling really stuck. I guess it's just the classic thing, you know, on paper, everything feels, you know, seems really good, you know, great job, really great friends, nice community, um, you know, things like going well on, on paper, but inside, I think I just felt very, very disconnected to, I guess, in a way, my heart and my soul. And I was just caught up in, in this really, really toxic hustle culture that is incredibly prevalent, I mean, in every industry, but definitely in the filmmaking industry. And I even remember just like these little things that I look back on that I just now find were, you know, in a way quite unhealthy in the sense that they were really enabling this, um, this really toxic culture of just like hustling nonstop and then eventually inevitably burning out, you know? And it's just these little things of like, you'd be, you know, you'd be working, you know, in like the, the company building and you'd be running into people and like just having little, you know, office small talk and, you know, people would be like, oh, how are you? And you're like, yeah, you know, I'm good, but I'm just like really, really busy. I'm just like so busy. And then the immediate response is like, oh, well, that's good. Busy's good. But it's, we never really stop and ask, you know, why do we associate that with something that's good? you know, and right. in reality, it's like, you know, you're so busy, but like, actually, I was honest to God, at certain points, I was working so much overworking, hustling, juggling so many different things at once, that I was actually making myself sick, you know, like I was actually exhausted, mm -hmm. and I was getting ill, my immune system was just completely shot, because I was barely, you know, getting enough sleep, and, you know, wasn't really taking the time to um, really tend to my needs, you know, on a, on a physical level in some sense, but also on, um, you know, on a spiritual sense too. And my soul was just starving um, because I had that initial yeah. connection. You know, I taught for a year at this Buddhist school. I, I had, you know, I, I definitely have had my awakenings and, but it was just something that I totally lost for a while there when I was in, you know, so caught up in this city life, I guess, the, yeah, the just the go, 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 work, 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 the overly uh, masculine go getting energy, which is beautiful and needed, but what most of the world does, right? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, and it's, it's a constant, it's a constant struggle, you know, it's like, even this concept of staying relevant. I remember even, uh, you know, when I was freelancing, and, you know, everyone, you're always pitching, you know, you're always networking, you're always trying to see, okay, what opportunities are, are coming up, maybe I can work on this film, or maybe we can pitch this idea or have something commissioned. And then there'd come a time where like, okay, I'm going to take some time off, I'm going to go for just a typical break, you know, just any kind of holiday. And you'd say this to people in, you know, in the industry. And then they'd be like, okay, but, you know, enjoy your holiday, but don't be gone too long because otherwise people are going to forget about you. And that was, that was like a, a thing. I don't know if it's the same in your industry, yeah. Gretchen, but definitely in the film industry and especially as a freelancer, it was like this threat, this like, this yeah. like under underlying, you know, seed of fear that is implanted into your brain as a trainee, especially I remember hearing it again and again. And it's like, 
this conditioning of like, we always have to be on, 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 on all the time. And um, so anyway, I, I had enough of that. I was like, okay, I need, I just need a change because I just feel so disconnected to myself. And I found a retreat happening in Bali. This is in 2019. And it was a healing retreat with a coach that I had been following on Instagram for a while, a couple of years. And I just really, really resonated with her and her teachings and her way of being. Um, and so very, very, very spontaneously and very last minute, I was actually the last, the last spot that was available on her retreat. I took it. And yeah, literally within 24 hours after the call with her, I bought my flight to Bali, went to the retreat, had one of the most incredible, profound, transformational experiences there. And I was just so enamored and enraptured by the magic of Bali. It felt so good to be back. It was like, this is just everything that I desire from a lifestyle point of view. And I, my soul just felt so happy there. And so when I left the retreat, I just thought, okay, you know what? I, I'm going to move there. Like, I need to make this happen. I felt this little whisper in 2014. Now it's time to take action. So I started planning another trip back out to Bali for that summer. And I thought, okay, I had a project that was coming up in London. So I thought, I'll, I'll finish this project. And then after it's done, I'll, I'll fly to Bali in the summer. And then as it turned out, divine timing, as always, divine orchestration, um, my project actually got postponed. And so I, um, I decided, okay, I spoke to my boss at the time. And I said, hey, you know, I know the, the project is getting postponed. I was actually planning to go to Bali in the summer. But since it's being postponed, you know, is it okay? Can you be, you know, kind of flexible with me here if I go now? And then I'll just come back to London once the project starts again. And if there's a little bit of overlap and I work remotely for a week or two, is that okay with you? And, you know, my boss at the time, and he's just the most incredible human. Um, he's like, honest to God, one of my guardian angels. And he doesn't really know it yet, but he just <laughs> has always been this incredible influence in my life. And he's like, yeah, no problem. We'll make it work. Bali sounds great. Like, go for it. You know, just really being my cheerleader. So off I went. Uh -huh. And then a week later, after I landed in Bali, COVID happened. And I've mm. basically been here ever since. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So when you left, were you planning on, were you prepared to stay there for as long as you have? Did you have no. all your belongings with you? No. Oh, I, my gosh. I thought I, thought I was going to, I was just going for a holiday. You know, I was like, okay, look, I'm going to spend a bit more time right. and see if I can make it work. But I, I essentially packed a bag for, I think I was going to spend maximum two months. And then, you know, when COVID broke out and it was officially declared a pandemic, my flights were canceled and I booked flights again and then oh, they wow. got canceled. So I only had a, I had one suitcase. Yeah. And, and now it's been two and a half years that I've been living here. And it's your home and it sounds so amazing. It's always been on my to-do list, on my bucket list. I have never been you to Bali. You've got to come. You, you, you will love it. It's, it's a really, really magical place, especially for, for people in your industry. Just anyone that's interested in self-development and spirituality, it's incredible. Yeah, I can't. I can't imagine. Oh, it sounds delightful. So you found yourself, now your home is Bali, which we agree yes. is amazing. And um, you're kind of going back to your roots a little bit now. You're, you have found these, just, I guess, a wonderful way to get back to Egypt. Yes. 
Yeah. Would you touch a little bit on your tours that you do? Essentially, obviously, as we've mentioned, you know, my, my, my background is in filmmaking and photography. Um, but of course, I've always had this, you know, this spiritual side of me. Um, but I always kept the two very, very separate. And I always, I guess, just kept my practice as my practice. You know, I would never, never have imagined that I would ever be doing what I'm uh, about to do this September. Mm-hmm. But I guess, I think for a lot of people too, just everything with the pandemic and this kind of forced isolation and forced time alone and I guess like a reset in a, in a, in a really profound way, it actually caused me to go even deeper into my own practice and into my own studies. And I think now where this, there's this beautiful interweaving of, you know, my background is a documentary filmmaker. And in the same way, this continued to feed into my own personal fascination with ancient Egypt. And obviously, you know, I'm from there. I was born in Cairo. You know, I go back to Egypt at least once a year with the exception of COVID because of restrictions. But other than that, I'm there every year. Um, So I've always had this thing on the side, but never, never, never imagined that I would ever make this into a thing beyond just myself, right? So I guess how it all unfolded was I was still in Bali, but at this point it was like, you know, I hadn't been home in two years in, in Egypt, hadn't seen family, you know, a lot of people can relate to this. And essentially, I started experiencing, I guess, a new form of, I guess, a new level of intensity, let's say, a new level of intensity in the form of lucid dreams and visions and intuitions coming through in a way that was incredibly surprising to me because I never really associated myself with that. I don't really work in the healing arts. You know, as I mentioned, I'm working primarily as a creative and a photographer. And I do hold space in my own right um, with the Mm self-love and the empowerment shoots, but I, I never identified in, in that sense. And essentially what was happening was I was getting very, very strong messages to come home, to go back to Egypt. Um, And so I followed it. I went back uh, and then I decided to take myself on essentially a quest to all of the ancient sites, all of the sacred sites, all of the pyramids, all of the temples, you know, many of them I had seen before, but just not at the level of consciousness that I would have had, you know, that I had then. And this was last year. This was right before the beginning of this year. I went back, uh, ended up staying for four months, just went and dove so, so deep. By the end of my trip, I got another strong message. And it basically was like, you need to take people on the journey that you've taken yourself on. And so essentially that's where all of this came from. And I'm now about to lead my first uh, retreat. It's called the Alchemy of Egypt Retreat. And I'll be taking a very intimate group through all of the sacred sites of Egypt, through Aswan, Luxor, and Pyramids in Cairo on an 11-day journey, which is also a, a huge initiation for me stepping into this role. So yeah, it's actually my first retreat that I'll be doing this September. That's so exciting. First of all, I want to commend you for really listening to the universe and taking this plunge Mm. into doing something new and different in your calling. So Mm. that's really, really amazing. And I love the name, the alchemy of Egypt, you Mm. said? Yes. 
Yes. So can we dive into that just a little bit deeper? What type of things will your, I'm going to call them your guests, be doing on this tour? And how is alchemy kind of built into the tour? Yeah, alchemy. So why I even named it the alchemy of Egypt retreat. Um, So the word alchemy itself actually comes from the the original name of Egypt, which isn't Egypt, it's actually Kemet. Mm-hmm. Kemet is is what Egypt, you know, the ancient Egyptian civilization as we know it is actually Kemet. It's not Egypt. Egypt is a, a more modern name given to it. Um, and so Kem or Kemet is where the word alchemy comes from, and it literally translates to black soil. And Essentially, what that means is, is it's the, the, that kind of primordial mud, that, that darkness, the abyss, the, the, the blackness from which everything, all the elements of creation, all the elements of nature, all of the different properties that come into alchemy of the universe was essentially originating from. You know, at the same time, we, we talk about alchemy on a, on a much more, you know, on a physical level, I guess what most people today would think of when they hear the word alchemy is you know a process of transforming and transmuting metals into gold and that's one part of it yes but i think the other the other piece which the ancient egyptians were definitely incredibly concerned with as well was the alchemy of our spirit you know the and and it's like all all the work that even we do today in you know modern self-development it's all all roads lead back to the same place you know it's all about this alchemy of our shadow alchemy of our you know subconscious um conditioning or limiting beliefs um alchemizing our pain alchemizing our trauma you know difficulties in our life into something higher whether that be love whether that be oneness whether that be a higher consciousness you know and so these these different threads of, of transformation are very much woven into the fabric of the entirety of the ancient Egyptian civilization. I mean, it underpinned everything that they that they believed in and the way that they structured their uh, society. And uh, I guess what we're going to be doing on the retreat. So, what the to answer the second part of your question. Essentially, we're really just going to be diving deep and it's going to be a pretty intense retreat. I mean, in terms of we're, we're going to a lot of places, there's going to be, you know, quite a bit of domestic travel. And essentially, we're just touring all of these sacred sites, all of the ancient temples, all of the pyramids. We're seeing some sites that are also not even open to the public. Um, we're going to be doing three nights on a beautiful uh, private Nile Dahabeya, which is actually the, the original um, boats that the ancient Egyptians also used. So there's no, no electric motor or anything. It's all just, you know, really being carried by the wind, really connecting with the elements and with the water. Um, yeah, we're going to be doing things like having blue lotus tea ceremonies under the stars on the boat. Um, we're also going to be weaving in a lot of different healing and uh, different ceremonies, different um, practitioners that are going to be coming and sharing their magic with the group as well. It's a quest that we're all going to together as a, as a group. And, you know, every single person has their own connection to Egypt, has their own reason, their own intuition that's calling them there. And I guess, yeah, we're, we're going as a group to really unpack that and, 
and essentially create the the set and setting and, and the space for profound life-changing transformation to occur if we so choose it. That sounds absolutely amazing. Oh, you know, you just touched on the blue lotus tea ceremonies. Can yeah. you share with the audience in case they're not familiar with it? What is Blue Lotus? Mm. What can one get out of or expect from a Blue Lotus tea ceremony? Mm, yes. Um, so Blue Lotus is essentially a type of flower. Um, it grows all over the world. I mean, not all over the world, but it, it definitely grows in places other than Egypt. But yeah, it was a plant that was highly, highly, highly revered and used in ancient Egyptian culture. Um, and even if you go into any of the ancient Egyptian temples or looking at any of their art, the, the different papyrus scrolls, you will very, very often see blue lotus. I mean, it's pretty much everywhere in, in the hieroglyphs as well. Um, and essentially, mm-hmm. most people would take it as a tea and you can literally just put these beautiful, gorgeous flowers and they are they are very blue. Um, and essentially just, you know, brewing them as a tea, but then there's also tinctures that can be made from them, oils, and essentially what it is used for. So the ancient Egyptians used it to heal all kinds of different ailments, but they also used it, um, as a kind of celebratory, you know, almost like a, it's not a psychedelic, but it, it kind of gives you a little bit of a euphoric feeling as well and they would actually mix it with wine with red wine um and they would sort of trigger some of these uh the more like euphoric effects and they would actually drink it as part of their celebrations and feasts one other thing that it can be really really helpful in is assisting people with dream recall and it can be an incredibly powerful ally if you are doing work in the dream space if you are you know um, wanting to explore lucid dreaming or astral projections, Blue Lotus is something that is also very often recommended for that as well. That's fascinating. Mm. And, you know, it seems that the Egyptians were, well, okay, let's get real. <laughs> they were <laughs> very, very advanced in so yes. many things. Their healing, their um, their medicine, they were very, very advanced in that area. The, the building of the pyramids is another great mystery and really just shows their advancement mm-hmm. and continues to just strike so many questions in so many people as to how yeah. that was done. Do you have any of your own theories or learnings as far as the advancement of this civilization? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think an important thing to touch on here. So I guess one thing that it might be good for listeners to just have as a bit of context. So typically there's there's two narratives when it comes to the pyramids as I the way that I perceive it. So the first one is the dominant mainstream narrative, um, which essentially all the, you know, Pretty much all Egyptology, all mainstream Egyptology, and just anything that is just mainstream in education, in the textbooks, in the history books, whatever we would have been taught in school, it essentially says that the pyramids were built by slaves, essentially to feed the egos of these pharaohs who just wanted these epic, crazy pyramids for for tombs. 
and they they believe that the pyramids were built around 4,000 years ago, so um, around 2,500 BC. Essentially, what I've come to realize in my own learnings and my own just reading, and there's so many incredible, incredible books out there that I can recommend um, for people that want to get a different perspective. But essentially, the other theory goes is these structures are far, far, far older than we've been led to believe. And so one of the main theories of that camp is that they were actually built around 10,000 years ago, if not more, rather than 4,000 years ago. So around 12,500 BC, not 2,500 BC. And then the other interesting thing about, about the pyramids is that, you know, Mainstream Egyptology will say this is, you know, these were all to feed the egos of these pharaohs and they were burial chambers and that's that. But one striking piece of evidence is that no bodies or tombs were ever found in any of the pyramids, you know, unlike any of the other temples where you will see that there are, you know, the different um, sarcophagus, uh, sarcophagi. Um, and, you know, clear evidence, okay, that this was definitely a burial chamber. There's, you know, there's markings and hieroglyphs, which, uh, shows the name of the Pharaoh that was buried. And it will, there'll often be, you know, paintings, beautiful paintings and illustrations that depict some of their greatest conquests and their, you know, in their, uh, rulership. But the pyramids, you go inside and they're completely empty. There's no... There's no hieroglyphs in, in the Great Pyramids of Giza. There's nothing on the walls. And it's, I mean, it's kind of crazy. I don't know if you've seen any like videos or anything of what they look like inside, but it's like you you definitely get a sense when you're going in there that it feels like you're almost in an oven, you know? Like it's mm -hmm. like, there it's, yeah. it's, there's, it's like you wouldn't want to be in them when they were turned on. Right, right. And I personally have not been there. Um, I have this really cool treadmill that does like virtual tours. Oh, so that's so cool. I've <laughs> actually had access. Yeah, I've had access to go on numerous tours of Egypt and oh through different God, pyramids and whatnot. Yeah, so I'm I've never been there, but I have been taken in through this virtual treadmill tour if you will, um, to, like I said, many of the sacred sites. And one thing that was really shocking to me is that some of them, they were built with walls, if you will, or the tunnels. They're only, they're very narrow. I think it's like three mm, feet or four feet. Super narrow. And that's, yeah, yeah, that's striking. It's interesting. Um, I mean, there's there's so much that we could go into on just the pyramids alone. You know, there's just entire books written just about this topic, obviously. Going back to the, you know, the other non-conventional theories as to why they were built. So not for these, you know, pharaohs to just feed their egos and have these really crazy um, outlandish tombs just for them. But many people from the other camp actually believe that they were created as power generators. Mm -hmm. And, you yes. know, going back to the, how advanced the civilization was um, and the technologies that they were actually capable of creating and producing the, the science behind the pyramids and how that actually works on a, 
like a, a physical level is is quite incredible. It certainly, certainly is. It's just absolutely incredible. I mean, the precision of the stones mm. alone. Yeah. That's incredible how quickly they built the pyramids. Um, let's see. They align with stars, mm. just to name a few of the, you know, very advanced, unusual things about the pyramids. And I believe they're built on a ley line. Is that correct? Yes. So the pyramids are actually built on the crossing of two different ley lines. And it's actually these crossing points is where you'll often find big, you know, megalithic structures or um, very ancient sacred temples around the world. So even if you look at the pyramids in uh, Mexico and also um, Stonehenge in England, those are also built on the crossover of two ley lines and essentially why that is is because at these crossing points it's actually where one ley line that has a very very strong electromagnetic charge is crossing over one that has a weaker charge and then in in the crossover it's essentially transferring some of its energy over to the other line so it's actually fulfilling a very very um, important purpose in terms of you know dispersing energy across the earth's grid and the, the choice to build these sacred sites on these particular places is absolutely not by any coincidence. Yes. Even in the, the, you know, the other thing about the choice of where the pyramids were built, there's actually um, aquifers, like sandstone aquifers, which is essentially like these little, kind of like just little, uh, like roots of just water. So it's like, it's almost like, you know, if you think about our, our veins and capillaries in our body, it's kind of like that, but under the under the earth, and all of these little like veins are just like um, filled with water. And essentially, what that means is that it gives it another another layer for it to be able to produce electricity and and charge and power. So, you know, even if you shine, you know, even if the sun shines on moving water, that creates energy. That creates a certain charge. And so, the way that the pyramids were built were you know, essentially, they took all of these different factors into consideration, even the, the stones that they used, the type of the type of limestone that they used has a very, very high constitution of mercury inside the stone. And then the, the casing. So if you look at images of the pyramids, you can't really see them on on two of them. But on the middle pyramid, you'll see that it's it you'll see the the main stone, you know, the main like giant, you know, megalithic stones that make up the the pyramid, but then you'll also see at the very top of it it's like this casing that has kind of been eroded off now. But you'll still see it at the very top yes. of the middle pyramid and yeah, you know what I mean by that. And essentially again, that was to built very very specifically to encase the the energy and to encase the the charge it's like you know how wires have um you know like a, a casing over them it's the exact same thing it's to not let the the energy that was being cultivated by the the pyramids the technology in the pyramid from you know leaking out everywhere right yeah that was something that I was fortunate enough to see and learn about on my, if you will, virtual tour. <laughs> and I thought that was quite amazing and quite impressive. 
yeah, I mean, you can't even fit a razor blade between any of the stones. Like, it's like it was that precise. And these stones are are not small, you know? Like, they're, um, I think the average weight of one of the stones of the pyramid is about 200 tons. That sounds about right. So it's like basically the, the weight of a, you know, a, a big car, you know, like a decent-sized car. And they had to... They were actually, they had to bring those in from miles and miles away. These weren't kind of local to the area where they built the pyramids. Um, they had to bring them all, you know, on, on I mean, the, the, the theory, the, the mainstream Egyptologists say, yeah, slaves just like pulled them up with ropes on these ramps for miles and miles long. But I mean, it just, like, you couldn't even do that today. You know, imagine trying to right. pull a, a car, like a four by four car through the desert on ramps that were miles and miles long and then have to build them to that level of precision. Again, as you mentioned, you know, aligning perfectly to the constellation of Orion um, mm-hmm. and and even the, the, the corners, each of the corners of the pyramids, they are exactly aligned to true north. So all of the cardinal directions are aligned with each corner of the pyramid. That it's that level of precision that is just, I mean, you couldn't even do that today. And there's a, there's a funny story that I like to share about um, one of the temples in uh, Luxor called Abu Simbel. And basically they, the ancient Egyptians built this temple for one specific pharaoh, King Ramses. And essentially, the, the way that the, the temple is built is that you go through this beautiful, beautiful, I guess, kind of courtyard that goes down for, you know, quite a few meters. And there's all these incredible, huge, you know, pillars and all of these stunning hieroglyphs and, and paintings and just like art all over the walls. And then at the very end, you see there's a little chamber where there's a statue of the pharaoh, of his uh, his wife, and then his I think his son, and then another another pharaoh. So it's sort of like a, a row of the four of them sitting, you know, on these thrones in the middle of the in this chamber. It's like their altar, and basically they built that chamber and they built the entire temple around it so that on the day of this king's birthday, this pharaoh's birthday, and only on that day, the the sun would illuminate perfectly the the chamber that they're all sitting in just on that day on his birthday was when this chamber gets illuminated by the rays of the sun and what yeah, happened that's amazing yeah, yeah i mean the, the the knowledge that they had about the, the the solar system and the universe and the laws of nature and just the physics you know it was unreal and like i said we don't even have this knowledge really today and they kind of proved that when in the 80s they wanted to you know build a dam in aswan so essentially they had to move a whole bunch of ancient temples and this was a huge 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 project they had to invest quite a lot of money and a lot of time into literally very very carefully piece by piece moving some of these temples so that they wouldn't get damaged by you know the waters that would be coming as a result of this new dam and so they moved the temple, this um, Abu Simbel temple, 
And even with all the technology that they had, okay, was this was back in the 80s, early 90s, so it wasn't the technology we have today, but still compared to quote unquote 4,000 years ago slash in reality, you know, 10,000 plus years ago, they moved that temple and they could not replicate what they had done with the chamber. And so now the light shines through on that chamber the day after his birthday. Oh, I, I love the story. It's so sad that they moved it and they I know. can't replicate it. Well, it just it just shows oh. you though. In a way, it's it's an it sucks that that happened because it's like, God, you really messed it up. But at the same time, it's actually just more <laughs> proof, you know, it's just more proof that like you know, we're not really giving the civilization the the full credit that's due in terms of what they were actually capable of. Oh, I completely agree with you there. That is for sure. So we've touched on a few things already that are just absolutely amazing that they were able to do in their time. But not to mention, I believe that it's built on the root chakra. Is that not correct? So the um, the pyramids of Giza are built on the throat chakra, actually. The throat chakra. Mm. Okay. So they're on a couple ley lines. They're on the throat chakra. They're aligned with Orion. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. (laughs) Not to mention the fact that (laughs) these are some of the most beautiful, awe-inspiring pyramids. But we also have pyramids on the other side of the world, which really makes you wonder how mm. how that happened, what the connection is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I would love to, to visit, you know, all the pyramids in, in the world, honestly. I unfortunately haven't been able to to see the, the ones um, in Mexico yet. But it, it does really, you know, make you wonder, as you say, um, there's certain synchronicities and, you know, very, very similar design and and similar properties that were built literally opposite ends of the earth with no way of 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 knowing about each other at the time um so yeah it it really it really does inspire a lot of mystery wow so we've talked about a lot of the interesting facts if you will about the pyramids but a question for me is do you feel a certain vibration when you're there? How does it feel to literally be there? Is there a vortex or a grounding or what happens in your body when you're there? I love this question. Um, so in the pyramids specifically, and the, I'm going to talk about the pyramids of Giza since we're on it already. But for me personally, I feel it even just looking at them from a distance because of the way that mm. they just command your presence. It's it's honestly like nothing that I've ever experienced or seen. And, you know, when you go inside and this is something that I actually experienced personally. And this was before I knew that it was even the throat chakra of the of the earth. But I remember going inside and I had this very, very strange feeling overcome me, which was I just wanted to sing. And oh. I'm not I'm not a singer, you know. I mean, sure, I like singing in the shower, but it's not, you know, it's not my main jam. <laughs> I remember very, very vividly, it was like, it was so strange. It just, these sounds just wanted to come out. 
And then I started looking into it. And then it turns out this is actually a very, very common experience. A lot of people have um, have talked about this. And of course, yeah, now now we understand that it's no surprise that it is on, you know, sits on the throat chakra of the earth. Um, and I would definitely say that, you know, again, if we if we believe in the the theory that it was a generator for power, electrical power, you know, you can feel the charge, you know, you can feel the, you know, viscerally in your body, you can feel that there's a, a vibration. And I would say that it's a very intense energy. There's temples that I've been to in Egypt that are uh, uh, powerful, but a lot softer. You know, the energy is a lot softer. It's more angelic. It's more light. I would say specifically for the pyramids, it's a very, very intense, potent, I would say masculine energy as well. But, you know, at the same time, it's everyone has their own lens and everyone has their own level of sensitivity. So I would say if you're someone that has some type of a practice, if you're someone who, you know, meditates and things like that, yeah, I would I would literally bet money that you would for sure feel something in your body going inside because, you know, my, my belief personally is that, that they were built to generate power. And so, you know, you, you can feel the charge there. Just one more reason to sign up for your retreat. So you're already yeah. full for this year. And are you full for next year? Are you um, taking a wait list? Yes. So we are taking a wait list. Yeah, that's that's definitely the best way to, uh, to find out more about it. Um, the way that I did it with this retreat um, and the way that I will do it for all the retreats, I think, is um, I took calls with everyone that was interested because it is a very intimate group and it's, yeah, I guess I would say like quite highly curated in the sense that, you know, the journey that we go on is something that's going to be very likely to be profound and life-changing. Again, it's up to you what you do with the experience with, you know, like everything. But ultimately, I think that the people that are ready for this type of experience tend to be a full fuck yes. And with that comes, you know, the the commitment and the devotion to really doing the inner work and the preparation and really, you know, coming to this experience with an open mind and an open heart. And yeah, and just just uh, that curiosity and that commitment to, you know, being the shaman of their own experience and, and just being ready for some really, you know, potentially life changing experiences. So you have an absolutely gorgeous website, which is House of Light. And Thank that's you. H-A-U-S, House of Light. Is this a blessed place that people can reach out to you and if they're interested? Yes, that is currently the best place because as I mentioned to you before we got on the podcast, my Instagram was recently deactivated. Um, so for now, www.houseoflight uh, is my website. Or just email, which is just hi at houseoflight.com. But all of that is also um, on the website too. Wonderful. And of course, I'll have all this information down in the show notes for our listeners if they want to reach out and connect and inquire about your next upcoming trip. And um, I have to say, once they go to your website, though, this, your website is just an absolutely beautiful artistic display of some of your photography work that you do as well. You are just 
amazing at helping women just really embody their empowerment that they have and their femininity. I would love for you just to touch a little bit on your your photography and what you're doing there. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for the kind words. Um, yeah, so essentially, I the work that I do with photography is I guess I use the camera and photography as a tool to facilitate healing, radical self-acceptance and self-love. And this really Mm. came off the back of my own experience um, and doing a nude shoot for the first time, which was actually, funnily enough, at the retreat that I told you about that we we chatted about um, earlier on in the podcast, the retreat that I came to in Bali. And uh, so, you know, we each had to do, well, not had to do, we we each were invited to do a nude shoot. It was something that really, really helped me shift a lot in the way that I perceived my own body, the relationship that I had with myself, you know, so many different stories, which we all, you know, have. But mine was, oh, I'm a photographer, I'm behind the camera, never in front of the camera. So all of these, you know, deep Uh, deeply rooted conditionings and fears that we have around being seen and many people I think can relate to that Um, it's a very human uh, human quality fear of being seen fear of being rejected all of that and so once I started to realize how powerfully this could actually be alchemized through photography because it's a it's you know it is literally a mirror you know the camera is a mirror and there's nothing in a sense, more vulnerable than, you know, showing up raw, showing up naked, and then having your photo taken, because it's like, it you that is just the definition of you being seen. And it works on an even deeper level beyond just the physical, but that vulnerability, that that willingness to just go there to meet your edge to to really just to stand, you know, and hold yourself and, and really be witnessed in that no matter if you're you don't have the the bikini body that you were hoping for, no matter if, oh, I wish I had done this a month later so that I could have gone to the gym more or like cut down on sugar or whatever it may be. It's like, no, like in this now moment, whatever your body is looking like, whatever, you know, place that you're in, to be able to stand and show up. And it, you know, it doesn't even have to necessarily be nude, but of course, like for sure, it's very, very powerful when you are that in itself, Mm -hmm. that act in itself is healing. And it can really, really shift a lot for people. And I've had, you know, incredible feedback from my clients who, you know, none of them are models. I I shoot brands sometimes, but very rarely, most of my clients are just, you know, people, just men and women um, who are drawn to my work and want to be taken on, uh, I guess, a little bit of a creative experience and and healing journey and essentially I guide my clients through different embodiment tools um, and essentially it's it's about being seen in your vulnerability and your rawness but it's also opening a space for creativity and creative expression and play and actually tapping into okay what version of you wants to come out and how can we actually curate a photo shoot that is going to again create set and setting that's gonna be uh, I guess, an enabler for you to step into that next version or that higher version, you know? So there's so many different ways that I, I like to play with that in, in my different shoots. And, you know, but ultimately they are all, all, all designed 
to empower and to, to leave you feeling empowered. And then the best part is that because it's photography, you have this experience, you have the healing, you feel the, you know, the shift, but then you also get the physical proof, the evidence, the brain loves evidence where you can actually from years and years and years later, you know, imagine showing your kids or your grandkids, oh my gosh, this was this, you know, photo shoot that I did that was really, really incredibly empowering. And this, this was me in that chapter of my life. And, you know, how sacred that moment is and that version of you is so, so, so sacred and something that you can always cherish. Right. Uh, that's incredible. You know, I really love the unique way that you've tied your work in photography into this real authentic, almost spiritual awakening opportunity. Mm. And mm -hmm. that's just really just unique and something different that I haven't heard a lot of people doing. And what an experience. Thank you. So you're so welcome. So I've got to ask because your retreats that you're doing, if you will, or tours that you're doing in Egypt, will you be doing any photography as well during that time with the people that are on, on your tour? So it's funny. I, I actually will be doing a little bit. I mean, I feel like I initially, I thought, oh, this can be a photography thing and this, and we'll take photos in all the temples and all of that. But then I just realized, you know what, it's just going to be a lot for, for me as a, as like a, you know, leading the retreat and facilitating um, for me to also be taking photos. Mm -hmm. But of course I will bring my camera. I mean, I can't not, um, <laughs> but I have actually arranged for another photographer and videographer to be there and help us capture some of the moments. And then, yeah. And then absolutely like I'll have my camera with me if I want to you know, capture any of the, um, any of the guests that, you know, want to have photos of themselves in these incredible temples, which are absolutely, you know, some of the most stunning, uh, intricate, uh, detail oriented backdrops that any photographer would ever dream of. But I think just like intuitively going in as my first retreat, I just thought, okay, I don't want to potentially put too much on on my plate. So that's why I, um, yeah, I did bring in another photographer, but yes, in short, there will be, but I don't know if I will be doing all of the photography. Right. Which, okay. That makes complete sense to me. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your wealth of information about Egypt and the pyramids and the beautiful history and your wonderful tour that you have, the alchemy of Egypt coming up. It's just been a real joy to have you on the show and connect with you today. So thank you so much. Yeah, yes. thank you so much for the opportunity and for just asking such great questions and having me on the podcast. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed speaking with you. Well, thank you so much. so much for joining me today on the Spiritual Life Management Podcast. If you like the podcast, please show your support by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to be notified of new episodes. And if you'd like to contact me, just send me an email at GretchenSmithCoaching at gmail.com. Also, follow me on Instagram at GretchenSmithCoaching for more inspiring content on creating your best life. Lastly, if you're interested in working with me for spiritual holistic life coaching, 
just send me an email or DM. All information is below in the show notes under Linktree. Sending you love and namaste.